Bishop David Roller and his wife Yvonne are here with us. Would you guys stand? Um, Would you welcome them to Christ Community Church? We are honored and blessed to have you, and not so much because of the title, but because of your lives. Um, these, I can't tell you how much uh, David and Yvonne Roller mean to, to me personally, to Pam and myself. Their ministry, their life, uh, it is such an honor and, and blessing to have you here with us. I'm going to ask uh, Bishop Roller to come in just a moment. Before he does, I have two really important announcements. Um, the first one is this. Uh, we have about seven possible short-term mission trips next year. Some of these will be very small teams going into places where we can't take large teams. Um, But we have an informational meeting next Sunday. Uh, If you are thinking about, or if you just wondered in the past, you know, I wonder if I could ever go on a trip like this. There's nothing... Now, you're not committing to anything. This is an informational meeting. We would love for you to come to hear about these trips, to hear where we're uh, planning to go next year. Um, It's next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. So next Sunday at 4 o'clock. Be sure to put that on your calendar. Um, Be here for that meeting to hear about all these trips, and you'll hear all the details from each of those trips. By the way, um, we got word this week that our team that was going to Mexico... Shane Clark was with us last Sunday, and uh, we were going down to do ministry with Shane down in Mexico, and we got word that because of unrest and revolts in that immediate area, uh, that team will not be able to go. Um, So please keep that ministry, Laughing Child Ministries, Shane Clark in your prayers, and um, we're confident we'll go back at some point, but uh, they just said it is just not a good time to come at all. It would create more of a burden for them than it would be a blessing. So uh, just be in prayer for that team as well. The second announcement is that we have a very, very special happening this afternoon. Today at 4 o'clock, we'll be having a celebration service. We do this three or four times a year. Uh, we will be celebrating baptisms and dedications. I think we've got 11 dedications. We've got eight or nine baptisms. It's going to be an awesome, awesome time to come together and to celebrate where God is at work. Um, it will start at 4 o'clock. It will be done around 5 or 5.15, immediately followed by a reception. We would love for you to be here. And this celebration service has a very special added feature in that we're going to be ordaining Nick Cash to be an elder in the Free Methodist Church. Um, the caches are here with us. Many of you know that they serve on the Mercy ship uh, off the coast of Africa, the Africa Mercy uh, ship, and uh, but they're here for the holidays. So we have asked our bishop to come in. That's why you're here, is to ordain uh, Nick Cash this afternoon. So please, if you can, uh, plan to come back and be with us this afternoon. And uh, so that leads us to the message. And uh, Bishop is here for the ordination. But since he was going to be here, I said, would you please come and bring us a word? And um, it is a delight to have you guys here. I I think I first met uh, Bishop Roller when he was uh, area director over Latin America. And um, I remember you asked us to consider, to prayerfully consider planting a church in Caracas in partnership with the Venezuelan church. And uh, I remember us meeting in Spring Arbor, Mm -hmm. talking about that work. Mm And I remember turning to him and I said, but, you know, you're nominated for bishop. What happens if you get elected bishop and all the, we've got all these plans in the works? And he said, oh, that'll never happen. Um, and uh, here you stand in your second term now yeah, yeah, as bishop. Yeah. And, again, uh, 
just incredible leader in our church. Thank you so much for your leadership. Um, David is a master storyteller. He loves to tell, I guess that's kind of the Latin culture as well. It is, and yeah. Very much yeah. so. But uh, a master storyteller. And, of course, the greatest story ever told is the story mm. of God's Word. Mm. And so we welcome you and look forward to hearing the story of God's Word this morning. Thank you, Pastor Keith. Bless you. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago in a place far, far from here, a place you've never been but perhaps would like to visit, deep, deeper still, deep into the counsel of God himself. Had you been a fly on the wall before there were flies and before there were walls, you would have heard a conversation. You would have heard a decision made that someone would have to become somebody that someone was going to have to put on the dust, put on the dirt. And in the most upside-down story of all time, the one who would create it all said, I will go and become it all to rescue it all. Surrounding them was this abyss this soup of nothingness, this inky blackness, until a voice rang out, light, and here came light. And then he took this abyss, this, this bottomlessness, and he separated the waters so there was a space in the middle. Out of that space in the middle, he called dry out of the wet. And then out of the dry, he called plants, a vegetation, each one with a seed inside so it could reproduce itself. He threw the sun out just for, sun, for fun and the moon and the galaxies. <laughs> the whole thing, I don't know if it was a big bang or if it was a steady swoosh, but he made it all. Remember I said he separated and he made water above and water below? In the water above, he made things that flap and fly. And in the waters below, he made the creatures of the deep, things with fins and flippers. Then he said, let's make some animals just for fun. Crazy animals like giraffes in their, with their elegant lope. Things like aardvarks. And bear. Then he put some of the dust together 
a leg here, a leg there, an arm there, an arm there, a chest. And he breathed into it. He brooded over it. He made it alive. And there they stood. A naked man, a naked woman. And in some very important ways, they looked like the one who created them. He put them in a place of great fruitfulness. So like at the upper elevation where it was colder would have been the cold fruits. Things like pears and apples. Then as you come down in elevation you get trees that produce things like chocolate. And bushes that produce coffee. And bushes that produce raspberries and strawberries. And then as you come down further, you get things like walnuts. At some point, you get the perfect fruit, the peach. And then you get down to the lowest elevation where it's hot and humid. And you get your bananas, your cherimoya. You get your mango. All of the fruit delicious, all of the fruit perfect. And here the man and the woman had everything they wanted to eat. Did I mention the outlaw fruit? No, okay. Well, in the middle of this paradise, the one who made it all put one fruit uh, that was an outlaw fruit. He said, just so you know, don't eat that one fruit. He called that tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because love requires a choice. He said, just don't eat that one. I don't know what that fruit looked like. Maybe it had the, the shiny red waxiness of an apple or maybe it had the texture of a pomegranate. I, I don't know what it looked like, but something about it said, come to me, come to me, my darlings. <laughs> You're going to love me more than bananas and cherries. Something special is here for you. Come, my sweet things. And they came to it. They looked at it. They wanted it. She picked it. She shared it. When their teeth sank into that verboten fruit, that forbidden fruit, that fruit prohibido, when their teeth sank into it, they broke it all. They wrecked it. They shattered it. It was like something dropped, something crashed, something splintered, something was torn. A shattering that Reached even me. And now the plan started to make sense that had made before the beginning of anything, before there were walls, before there were flies on walls. They wrecked it. They cracked it. They shattered it. Then came Noah and the flood. Then came the Tower of Babel. Y las razones por las cuales 
hablamos idiomas distintos. Then came from a town called Ur, a man named Terah, and the plan began to unfold. He got halfway, he got to Haran, and then God said to his son, Come on, I've got a place of promise for you. I've got a home for you that you've never been to. So Abraham followed him there. Then Abraham had a son of the promise named Isaac. Isaac had a son of the promise named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons and a daughter named Dinah who was in the kitchen strumming on the old banjo for reasons we will never know. The next to the youngest of the 12 sons of Jacob was named Joseph. He was an uppity lad. His jealous brothers sold him as a slave. The slave traders took him down to the country of Egypt. In Egypt, he worked hard. The hand of God was upon his life. And Joseph rose to be the second most important person in Egypt. So important that when a famine came back in the land of promise where his family was living, they were able to seek refuge in Egypt. He was able to receive them in. So now the whole family of promise, all 12 brothers, sisters, the whole gang is down in Egypt. They're there 430 years. But a pharaoh is born who does not respect Joseph and his family, and they become slaves. They become brick makers. This is all they know how to do, is to carry on their shoulders the mud, the straw, the manure, and the water from which they made bricks for the monuments of Pharaoh. Until one day, a protester took a small sign down to downtown Cairo, down to Tahrir Square. And he protested. He said to Pharaoh, Let my people go. And Pharaoh said, No, I will not. They are useful to me. So this protester named Moses brought back a second sign, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a seventh, an eighth, a ninth. He brought back a tenth sign. <laughs> Pharaoh awoke at midnight he went to check on his son to make sure he was sleeping safely. He put his hand on his son's forehead. It was cold. Pharaoh wailed, lamenting the death of his firstborn son. And his cry mixed with the cry of every other Egyptian as they awoke at night and they found not only every firstborn child dead, but every firstborn animal dead as well. Pharaoh called Moses in the middle of the night and he said, Get out of here! You've become a curse for us. In the greatest jailbreak in recorded history, 620-some thousand men, plus their families, fled from Egypt. They headed east right toward the Red Sea. They get to the shore of the Red Sea, now Pharaoh's armies are closing in behind them. Moses lifts his staff. 
the sea opens up and makes a dry passageway through the sea. All the Hebrews, plus the other slaves who were escaping with them, fled. Now they're on the other side, and they're now in the Sinai Peninsula. The walls of water crash back down. Pharaoh's people are killed. Now they're on the other side. And they know how to do nothing except make bricks. They have no people to be priests or generals. And the Amalekites come out and attack them at their seventh campground. Moses looks around. Who do we have who can lead us in battle? Hey, here's a young man named Hosea. Now, the the name Hosea means saves. Like salvation. It means saves. So he calls Hosea to be the general against the Amalekites. Hosea leads out the army of the Hebrews. They're victorious. They come back in. And his name changes from Hosea saves to Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. Joshua becomes the second staff of Moses. Not the wooden staff, but his aide de camp, his his other staff. So Joshua's there at the seventh camp. At the eighth camp, Joshua is the one who Moses takes up Mount Sinai with him, where he gets, you remember, he gets the Ten Commandments, he gets the instructions for how to make the tabernacle, how to make the robes of the priests, all the rules for the Sabbath and for the sacrifices. They come down, they find that there's revelry in the camp, the people have gone crazy, they've made a golden calf, but Joshua is the only one who hasn't participated in it, because he was up the hill with Moses, so they're back there, that's the eighth, eighth camp, at the eleventh camp, Moses says, okay, we need to send out a spy party. We're headed for our home. Remember the home that we had before, before we were slaves? We're headed back to the homeland, but we're going to send out 12 spies, one from every every tribe. And Joshua was one of those chosen to go in. They go in, they say it's a lovely land, but 10 of the 12 spies say we cannot. We cannot defeat them. They're too much for us. We're just brick makers. What do we know? But Joshua and Caleb said, we can do this because Yahweh saves, God saves. There was a riot, and the ten won. God punished them. He said, okay, for every day, for every one of the 40 days you were scouting out the promised land, you're going to be punished. For every day, you're going to be punished with a year of wandering around the desert. So 40 days, 40 years of wandering around the desert. They wander around the desert. They're in the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years. At their 38th camp, now the 40 years are up. Their 38th camp, they're at the very end of this journey. They get to the plains of Moab. Moses has gone up on the peak where he's able to look west. He's able to look over the Dead Sea. He's able to look into this land of promise, but he doesn't get there. God gives him a proper burial And then God says to Joshua, says to Yahweh saves, you're the one now. The hope of the people now is in you. I just ask for you to be brave, courageous. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Just stay true. Can you do that? So Joshua organizes the people. He takes them right down to the river. They're on the plains of Moab. Here's the Jordan River. Here are the plains of Jericho. Here's the city of Jericho. That's their first objective. They get down near there. 
Joshua says, okay, everybody, I need one strong man from each of the tribes. Just be ready. I'll tell you what for later. Then he says, I need two spies. We're not sending 12. We're just sending two. So they swim the river. The two spies get over there. They get into Jericho. They go thinking, I suppose, that they're not going to arouse suspicion. They go to the house of a prostitute named Rahab. She receives them in her house. Now the king of Jericho is alerted that two of these Hebrew horde who are camped right on the other side of the river, they've been watching them, that two of these folks are here in his, in his city. So he sends down the guards to get them from Rahab's establishment. She hides them up on the roof. The guards get there. Rahab, bring out the Hebrews. Now, I don't know if this was the first time Rahab lied or not. But she's pretty good at it. And she says to the guards, oh, you know what? You just missed them. Yeah, they were here, but... Uh, they just left. In fact, I think if you hurry, you'll catch them. I think they said they were headed down to the river. So the guards take off chasing them, supposedly. She shuts the door, goes back up to the roof where she had hidden them under stalks of, of flax because it was harvest season. So she's got the flax up there drying on the roof. She talks to him and she says, we know God has given you this land. Our hearts have melted in fear. Only one thing I ask, when you come in, when you take over Jericho, Save my family. And they said, okay, if you put a red rope out your window, we'll know which house to spare, and we will save your family. Our lives for yours. She said, okay, and she lowered him down out the window at night. They went and hid in the hills till the guards weren't looking in it for him anymore. Then they go back. They swim across the river. They get to Joshua, and they said, Joshua, good news. This is the, the land is ours. The people are terrified of us. Joshua says, okay, three days from now we're going. So he tells everybody, move down to the river. So they move down to the river. He tells the priest, on the day I say, you're going to take those acacia poles. You're going to slide them in the rings of the Ark of Covenant. You're going to lift it up on your shoulders, and you're going to walk down into the middle of the river. Now, this wasn't that ark that floated. This is the other ark. This is the ark of the covenant. And you're going to walk down in the river. And they're like, okay, okay, we're, we're ready to do that. Then he says, where are the 12 strong men? You ready? Yeah, we're ready. So then he, they, they head out and they start down. They get to the river. Now, the river's at flood stage because it is harvest time. They get to the river. All the people are watching. And the priests put their feet in the river. The instant their feet touched the water, the water stopped. Not right there in a pile, but they piled up back near a city called Adam. And the priests continue. They walk out in the middle of the river. They stand there with the ark on their shoulders. And Joshua says, cross now! The order goes out and all the people and the ox carts and the children and the flocks, they all begin to cross. Uh, they cross the river. They get on the other side at the, by the end of the day. They're over there now. They're on the plains of Jericho called Gilgal. Joshua says, where are my strong men? They come to him. He says, okay, guys, go down in the river right where the priests are standing. Find the biggest, heaviest rocks you can. can. Each one of you bring one rock, bring it back up here. So they bring it back up. They're you know, seeing who can get the biggest rock. They get up there, and Joshua says, okay, in order now, we're going to build a monument pile. Reuben. 
This is the rock of Reuben, firstborn. Simeon, the rock of Simeon on top of it. Levi, Judah, all 12 stones all the way up to Benjamin. He said, now you may be asking yourselves, what's this about? Years from now, he said, when your children say to you, Mom, what's that pile of rocks? You're going to tell them the story. Tell them the long story. Tell them how they fit in that long story. That's what the pile of rocks is for. A few days later, they did conquer Jericho. The walls fell down. They did spare Rahab and her family. And it's interesting, isn't it? That Rahab eventually married one of them. One of the Hebrews. This prostitute. She married a man named Solomon. And they had a child named I think I've got this right. I think it was Boaz. And if I'm not mistaken, then Boaz had a son named Obed. And then Obed had a son named Jesse. And then Jesse had a son named David. Yeah, that David. King David who grew up in a little town called Bethlehem. He heard about a war where his brothers were fighting the Philistines. His dad sent him to take some food to his brothers. He gets down there to the battle, and here's this giant Philistine, this giant foreigner who has come there. They're trying to take over this promised land. David picks up five stones. He's got a slingshot. He runs out. He kills Goliath. He cuts off his head. He eventually becomes the king of Israel. Now these are the golden years. This is the golden age of Israel. This is the the time when David was king. The, The territory expands. Their importance expands. This is now a significant kingdom, the kingdom of David, but it doesn't last very long. Solomon And then Rehoboam, Jeroboam, tear the kingdom apart, north and south. And the whole thing goes downhill. First, the Assyrians come and beat them up. Then the Babylonians come and beat them up. Then the Greeks come, then the Ptolemies, then the Egyptians. I mean, it just goes on and on. From David, there are a thousand years of bad news. A thousand years where mothers and fathers told stories to their children saying, Honey, I know it doesn't look like it, but we are God's chosen people. I know it doesn't look like it. I know there's no evidence, but God really loves us. A thousand years of telling stories about stories about stories because no one could remember. And now, last in line to take them over were the Italians. Yeah, the arrogant Italians. 
with their cruel coliseums. Their arched aqueducts. Those fancy Caesar salads. I mean, who do they think they are, these Romans? What else could go wrong to this people who were a part of the plan? Well, you could live in a little village that had a bad reputation. Such a bad reputation that there was a saying about your village. The saying was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, what else could go wrong? Well, you could be a woman from Nazareth, born in a man's world. What else could go wrong? What if you missed a month? Young woman from Nazareth, conquered country of Israel, and you missed a month. Now, this is in a culture where it's not just an embarrassment to be single and pregnant, but it's a capital crime. What else could go wrong? Well, you can't even stay home. You can't even stay at home because the Romans decide to get another drop of blood out of the turnip and they they say, okay, we're going to have one more tribute, one more tax. So everybody has to go to their ancestral home, which for both you and your fiancé happens to be this little town called Bethlehem. Yeah, the same Bethlehem that David was from. Yeah, the same David that came from Jesse, that came from Obed, that came from Boaz, that came from Rahab. So you and your fiancé make this 80-mile trek south along the Jordan River Valley, passing the pile of stones, the memorial stone, up the hills past Jerusalem, five miles south to Bethlehem. And maybe the inns really were full, right? I mean, maybe they were. But maybe this was the innkeeper's way of letting you know that nice girls don't let this happen. And you can sleep with the animals, honey. Whatever the reason, they're cast out to sleep with the animals. What else could go wrong? Late at night, you feel your uterus contract. And here we go. Just when I didn't need it the most. Far from mother. Far from helpful aunts. Who's here to help? Just the carpenter with his calloused big hands. (laughs) The last guy you want at a birth. And with all the the pain and the trepidation of a, of a birth, 
to be alone and in the cast out. I mean, what else could go wrong? Like, seriously? One last push. And she gives birth. It's a mess, as all births are. But Joseph says, Honey, just like we thought, it's a boy. He cleans him up a bit. Those tiny lungs expand for the first time coughs out amniotic fluid and takes in air. And they have no idea that he designed air. 79% nitrogen. 20% oxygen. Traces of argon, carbon dioxide, and helium. I mean, it was his idea. (laughs) Way, way, way back, it was his idea, air. And now he's put on the dust, he's put on the dirt. He has inserted himself in this preemptive move, in this move of bringing hope back to the brokenness, to the shattering, to the tearing, to the ripping in your heart. And he comes, here's hope, born as this little slimy baby. Puts her to, he puts him to her breast. He nurses. Then they lay him in straw. They wrap him up good and tight and lay him in straw. And he invented straw too. Straws in this stone feeding trough they called a manger. And he invented stone. And they put this little baby there a few miles to the north. Herod the king slept fitfully, the crown uneasy upon his head, a premonition, a word from some wise men that all was not well in his kingdom. A thousand miles away, Caesar Augustus slept peacefully in his palace in Rome. No idea that that was the year zero. That the hinge of all history was that night. No idea that the brokenness was ending. Because hope was lying in the straw. Mary and Joseph looked at each other. And nodded in agreement. They already knew what they were going to name this child. The Hebrew form of the name was Joshua. Yahweh saves. And the Greek form of the name was Yahweh saves, God saves, 
The Greek form is Jesus. And that, my dear friends, is a pretty big part of God's big story. Amen. Amen. You know, today is uh, the first Sunday of Advent. Some of you didn't grow up in church traditions that celebrated the the Christian year, but uh, this is the first Sunday of Advent, which is the season of preparation for the celebration of the day that we call Christmas, the coming of Christ. And uh, you have just heard a powerful story that reminds us of a very, very important truth. And that is that there's always a story behind the story. We think of that moment, we think of that day when Jesus was born, and we get very focused on that day during this season of Christmas. But you know, it's interesting, in Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's version of the story of Christ's coming, he begins the story with a genealogy. And a genealogy, which many of us probably skip over in our reading, was very, very important to the Jewish people because the genealogy told the story. And you see names in the genealogy like uh, uh, Rahab and David and Hezekiah and all the people that have come down through the ages. It's a reminder that there's always a story behind the story. You see, the story that we celebrate on Christmas is a story that began millennia earlier when God, knowing that creation would fall, knowing that sin would come into the world, knowing that we would be separated from him by our sin, already had a plan to use some of the most unlikely people and some of the most tragic consequences to bring about his purposes. And I think about that as we come to a close of this service because that revelation is also true of you personally. Each one of you, there is a story behind your story. You are not an accident. Even your presence here this morning is not a coincidence. God has been at work in your life from before you were born. God has never been surprised by anything that's taken place to you over all these years. And God had you here this morning to be reminded of the story and of the truth that there's always a story behind the story. What is the story behind your story this morning? In just a moment, we're going to invite you to come and to respond. And some of you may want to come and respond in prayer. Some of you may need to stay right where you are and just get on your knees and pray. You're free to do whatever you want. But you're also invited to come and celebrate Holy Communion. And I'm reminded as we think about these elements that they're simply symbols of the story. Uh, this This bread represents the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. This juice, the, the shed blood of our Savior. This is the story 
of the gospel. Uh, The story that Jesus gave his life to pay for your sins. So that you could come today and, and receive these elements. Not with doom and dread, but with your heads held full of excitement and joy because Jesus has paid the price. So communion ought to be a, a, a celebration. It's, it's not a funeral service. It's a, it's a celebration of life. And so we invite you to come. I'm going to ask those who are serving to go ahead and make your way, begin to prepare the elements. In just a moment, I'm going to ask all of you to respond. And let me just say, by the way, you don't have to be a member of Christ Community Church to share in Holy Communion. If you're a believer, you're welcome to come and to celebrate with us. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ before, you've never made that decision, I can't think of a better day than today for you to come and to decide today, I want to embrace God's story in my life. I want to to give myself fully to God's story. There will be people here ready to pray for you if you need healing, if you need uh, someone just to pray for a burden that you're carrying, or certainly if you need to pray for salvation today. There are people here who have been trained that are ready to pray for you. So I'm going to ask you now, if you will, just to stand. And uh, let's respond however the Lord leads you to respond. If it's prayer or communion, let's just begin to respond to the Lord this morning. He is here. He is speaking to you. And he calls you into his story.